0: Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, and today will be our first bonus episode where we'll be speaking with a living winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music. And today's guest will be Professor Ellen Taith Zwillick who is was a professor, is a professor emerita at Florida State University, uh, internationally known composer and winner of the 1983 Pulitzer Prize in Music. So Professor zwillick we're very excited to have you here and uh, look forward to speaking with you today. Me too,
1: okay. <laughs> right.
0: So our first question uh, is, Let's talk a little bit about your training. So you came from, from what we understand, a non-musical family. And uh, how did you get started in music?
1: Oh, um, when I was a toddler and I climbed up, on, we had a piano in the house and nobody played it. <laughs> when I was a toddler, I climbed up on the bench and found out what happens when you press keys down. And uh, <clears throat> I would say there's a part of me that's still that toddler on the bench, right. you know, amazed at, at music. And I started writing music very young. I mean, I didn't write it down until I was about 10, but I was making things up. And um, I had when I got to high school, I had a really wonderful experience um, where I was in a public high school in Florida where we had a fabulous music program. And we even had behind the screen auditions. And the reason was the band director was in charge and he didn't want seniors to get you know, complacent. If they were had a high chair, so to speak, a high chair. <laughs> so you got the last chair in your section when you got in, and, but you could challenge your way forward. The, the challenges were done behind the screen, and this was a school that owned instruments. And had a, had a couple of practice rooms. I mean, it was it was like a real little music school and we had a big rehearsal room and there was a small choral rehearsal room. We had three teachers, choral orchestra and band, and they had offices. And um, the fact that so many things were done behind the screen that it sort of opened the door for women. Mm -hmm. And I got to write music, my high school band played and I got to conduct them. And I mean, it was like, okay, why not? (laughs) So I, I really never had much of a problem with the, the female problem uh, because, and then when I got to New York, um, Stravinsky had started the American symphony a couple of years before that I got there. And uh, he had the door wide open for women, blacks, Asians, you know, hmm. and um, so I got a job in the American symphony and violin. I don't know. I, my, the two teachers that meant the most to me, as a violinist Richard Bergen, whom I studied with in at Florida State. And he'd been concert master of the Boston Symphony for many years. And he was a, a, a pupil of Leopold Auer at the uh, St. Petersburg Conservatory. He was a wonderful man and full of desire to make music. And, um, but then when I got to New York, I wanted to study w- with somebody like who who is uh, very, very technically interesting. Mm-hmm. And I did that. What can I say? My um, composition studies were uh, very nice in um, at Florida State with a gentleman named John Boda. That's
0: and actually I- <laughs> perfect. Uh, we can interrupt you. There, Andrew has a good question about that. Well, I was, Yeah, I was just yeah.
2: wondering about, so a lot of the Pulitzer winners that we've studied and talked about on the podcast so far uh, have a very kind of Northeast Ivy League pedigree we come to your pedigree and you start off I mean ultimately at Juilliard but you start off at Florida State University so I'm just curious oh, about yeah. how, how did you land at Florida State University and what did you get from your training there and did you ever think you'd come back to be a professor at Florida State
1: well um, I'm kind of like a visiting professor I'm not really a full-time <laughs> professor there I' I don't know how to say this but I was never interested in the outcomes hmm. I was interested in doing things yeah. um, and whether they paid off is is a totally different question. Um, I got a lot out of my experience at Florida State. I played, a lot of it was sort of extracurricular. Hmm. Um, For instance, when I was first there, I found out two things that stayed with me my whole undergraduate time. One is that, this this is before jazz was a part of the curriculum. Somebody came up to me and said, bring your trumpet, come in, Sunday we have an all day jam session. Hmm bring your trumpet and come in and it was it was a wonderful mix because there were older people who were very familiar with the whole jazz scene and you know they would they would kind of bring you up to date you know I first heard of Clifford Brown in in Uh that in that room one day and then I got his recordings he had already passed but got some recordings and wow you know what what an interesting guy. Performer. So I played jazz there. I played Mm -hmm. bebop, trumpet, and big band, that kind of thing. And the other thing was that Ernst von Doknanyi was at Florida State at that point. And he, um, it was interesting because. He was a wonderful composer, but people didn't go there to study composition with him because he was like the 19th century, you know, (laughs) and uh, really Brahmsian. I mean, Brahms was one of his first champions and so on. But people went there to study piano with him, and uh, he also taught conducting. He was a very good conductor, and most of his students that came as pianists got to play a concerto with him conducting, you know. Uh, But he had this... uh, conducting class, um, and uh, one of my other new friends at the Mm -hmm. university said, bring your fiddle and come in on Thursday or whatever it was, uh, and we we kind of put this little orchestra together for Dognani's conducting class, Mm -hmm. and that was the beginning of a wonderful relationship with him, Mm -hmm. and the last three and a half years of his life, I was, you know, this innocent teenager, and he would let me talk about things, you know, and uh, give my opinions and and so on. But he was really, really wonderful and very, very interested in music. One of my favorite experiences with him, we're sitting, this was after this class, we're sitting outside one day and I said, I'm playing the Brahms uh, D D major violin piano sonata. And it's my favorite of the three sonatas he looks off into the sky kind of thing and he said well he said you know the three of them are so different i wouldn't pick a favorite hmm. what a lesson for yeah. a 17 year old kid you know it's like uh, get out of this whole thing where you're designating this as that or, you know whatever it's, it was it was fascinating and there was a great deal that you, you got from him and what can i say and the music i wrote got played and
0: well, speaking of teachers that made an impact on you, uh, as listeners to the podcast will know, our last episode was about Roger Sessions, who won yeah. in 1982. And of course, you studied with Roger Sessions. So first, was it interesting that you won right after he did? And then also talk a little bit about what you learned from studying with with Roger Sessions.
1: Well, um, I work with Sessions. My, my Juilliard years were spent... You know kind of spread out because I was still playing uh, in the American Symphony and doing other freelance violin and I had a a full-time teaching job in a small college on the east side so I mean I it took me longer I wasn't like somebody who took a leave of absence (laughs) from (laughs) position and did it in one year I, I spread things out and the time working with Roger was just really wonderful And actually, the whole composition faculty was very friendly, unlike some of the faculties in music schools, you know, maybe violin, maybe voice, you know, you have, you know, this side and that side. And, you know, But we had people from uh, David Diamond to Milton Babbitt to Elliot Carter and and Roger Sessions. I mean, it was a real and, and you could show your music to all of them. You know, it, it was like very open. Everybody was quite open. And we had a, a like a composers forum every, every week. And most of the, you know, the uh, teachers were from out of town and they, they would all come in. And we'd get to meet them that way and uh, often one-on-one as well. You know, people say to me, what did you get from Roger Session? And I always say i uh, I can't tell you I got this or I got that from Roger Session, but while I was working with him, I found my own voice mm-hmm. and you you can't think of a better accolade for a teacher um and and if you look at this his students um I was at a concert, you know many years ago where um, they listed session students, and it was they, it was all over the map. Yeah. <laughs> From you know, avid serialists to to tonalists to minimalists, the whole the whole thing was just kind of like wide open. And he was really wonderful in, in that way. He wanted to know what you wanted to do. Basically, mm-hmm. he didn't want to tell you what to do. And, uh, and this was in a time where there was a lot of authoritarian stuff going on, you know, <laughs> that you can't do this, you can't yeah. do that. And you must do this, you must do that. You know, it was, it was, there was a lot of that going on. He had, he didn't have any interest in it.
2: Yeah, that <laughs> rings true. I mean, just thinking about his winning prize, and then we'll talk about your winning piece, and they're very different. <laughs> you'd yeah, never, yeah, yeah. You never say, oh, you clearly studied with Roger Sessions just from the sound. So that's really a wonderful...
1: Oh, no, no. And he didn't want estimation. you to write like him. He yeah. didn't want mm. that. And I never wanted to write like anybody. I wanted to find out what I wanted to do, you know, basically, mm-hmm. and um, let it come out however it does. I also worked with Elliot Carter for actually a short time, but we stayed friends until mm. till his end, you know. And uh, He was also very interesting. You know, I, I was very fortunate. And, and again, it's like, it isn't like you... Sign up for something and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And you're going to be careful not to do this, and not to do that. It was all about music and where's, where is it going to go? And the thing I love about what I do, I've, I feel so fortunate, is that it's a constant evolution. It, and I, I always say, you know, I may be an old horse, but I still feel like I'm at the starting gate. You know, it's like you're, it, things are evolving. Mm-hmm. And and when you look at the history of music look at Mozart Mozart died very young but during the course of his life there's this wonderful evolution mm-hmm. yes it happened and you know he was I, I always say when when I was learning how to tie my shoes, he was writing masterpieces you know but <laughs> but um, even Mozart, who started so young and had all the thing with Leopold in the background and everything, he he evolved in wonderful ways and that's that's been my goal in a way. See where it's going.
2: Well that's interesting because um one of the things we found in you know doing research to get ready to speak to you was an interview where you talked about how your husband's death in 1979 had a, a big impact on you and, and the evolution of your music and that you reevaluated kind of the way your your music was going to go. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your style kind of began and evolved during the late 70s and early early 80s leading up to this Pulitzer win.
1: Well, I think it's hard to express. Um One of my best friends went with me to Boston for the premiere of the Chamber Symphony. Mm -hmm. And I had worked on that for quite some time. And um, when Joe died, I was, you know, like I couldn't do anything for quite a while. And when I got back to it, I had to, I had a pretty close deadline and I just really had to start over. And when my friend came with me to the premiere in Boston, get to the end of the piece. And she turns to me and she says, I hear acceptance in your music. Mm -hmm. And I haven't heard a word out of you that accepted any of this. Mm -hmm. And I realized at the time that, you know, my music was ahead of me and this soulful values of music just sort of got to be more important they were always important to me but it just got to be more at the center of it Mm. and I never think about techniques I I honestly don't I plan things uh, before I start a piece I will you know make a rather elaborate plan and try this and do that and sketch this and sketch that uh, before the piece starts but once the piece starts if, if it the deviates from the plan, I throw away the plan and just go with the piece. Yeah. I, I think that what we sometimes don't realize with the way things are schooled, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. is that music is, is about every aspect of our humanity. Mm-hmm. Not only the head and the heart and the soul, but the gut. And if you leave out the kinesthetic elements of music, you're missing something really big. And of course, as a player, you know that's a big deal. You know, just just I mean, it's every aspect of our humanity, and we don't understand what our humanity is, and we don't know what music is. An exploration, it's a it's a voyage, and I like that. I mean, it's like I'd rather do that than learn how to do something and then repeat it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That, That kind of speaks to this idea of the evolution, right? Because we're always changing as people. Yeah, of the experiences that we have are going to be necessarily reflected in the creative output.
1: Yeah.
0: So speaking of creative output, as we move to your winning piece from uh, 1983, uh, it has two titles at least if you look at the record if you look at the cd it's symphony number one but it's also in parentheses three movements for orchestra that's right so so what so what is the correct title is there a correct title and what did oh. it mean to write a symphony in the 1980s because that's a term you know calling something a symphony as you know is a very that's a lot of baggage to hold yeah so
1: I, tell yeah. us a little bit about <laughs> it. well um i started this piece I had a Guggenheim Fellowship, and I was at the McDowell Colony. Guggenheim was going to support me for a couple of years. And the McDowell Colony, I mean, they bring you lunch every day, you know, (laughs) in a basket. I mean, it's really, really, very, very supportive and so on. And, And I've sat there my first few days there. I said, this is the time to do something really stupid. So I started a piece for orchestra. And I got a lot of it done while I was there. Then I had to put it aside because I did actually have a commission for a chamber piece. Then, quite some time later, I got a call from the American Composers Orchestra saying that they had, there was a composer they commissioned who could not fulfill the commission. And can I get an orchestra piece, a new orchestra piece to them within? And it was like, six weeks or something like that and in those days you had i copied the parts you know so it was it was a lot a lot of stressful work i was in pittsburgh for a performance of a chamber piece and i didn't go out i mean i'm just always sitting there copying parts and (laughs) finishing the piece and so on and when i got to the double bar (laughs) I didn't want to deal. I thought it was a symphony, but I didn't want to deal with it. As you said, you know, it, it, it was an issue at that time. And what does it mean to write a symphony? Ba, 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 ba. I, I just didn't want to deal with it. So I I didn't call it anything. And that's a habit I have. I, I tend to write a piece and then I think, what am I going to call it? You know? <laughs> And one of the worst things I experience as a as a listener, I hate going to a concert where I love the title and I don't like the piece. You know? mm. <laughs> I, I'd rather like the piece and not the title. Well, what happened, uh, there was a, a gal named Nancy Shear, who's still a friend of mine. <laughs> she used to work for Stokowski, and she was doing putting stuff together for the, the uh, American Composers Orchestra. And she called me one day and she said, uh, we're, uh, we're going to press tomorrow. I, I need a title. And I said, oh, I don't know what I'm gonna call it, Nancy. And she said, Ellen, you gotta give me a title. <laughs> and she's she's my friend. So I said, Well, okay, it's uh it's for orchestra and it's in three movements, so call it three movements for orchestra. So that's how it appeared on the program. And Gunther Schuller was the the conductor of the the premiere performance. And Gunther took me aside after the first rehearsal. He says, you know, this is really a symphony. I said, yeah, Mm -hmm. I know. I just didn't want to deal with the the issue. He said, well, it's a symphony. So call it a symphony. So I called it a symphony.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's also fascinating because it's the first called symphony that has won the Pulitzer in decades at this point, whenever it won in 1983, because they were a period uh, like you said, where that just wasn't done. Used that term was just yeah. in, uh not it wasn't in vogue, but there was just so much baggage with it that people tended to kind of tended to kind of avoid it.
1: <laughs> well, but you know, there was an awful lot of baggage around that time, and I just didn't believe in it. And part of it is because I had like a mixed experience. I, I had a lot of orchestral experience as a violinist and chamber music and so on. And I came to music in a different way, perhaps, Mm. from somebody who would study this or that and then write like that. And um, it's, um, it's just a different experience. And I had conducted and performed and that was all embedded in me. And I've always written, even when I was hand copying i've always written on full score and i did that when i was at the mcdowell mm-hmm. colony because i want to feel the instruments they're there mm. and they're they're looking at me you know it's it's a organic kind of experience yeah
0: do you think that's something that's lost in today's composers because when you're using a screen for finale or sibelius or do you feel that that skill of coming at it from a performance standpoint or from Copying parts and is that lost? Does that do you lose anything, do you think?
1: Um, well, I was more than happy to lose the copying of parts. <laughs> <laughs> and I've used a computer program, I've used Sibelia since the two thousands. Mm. I started it, it. It somebody said to me, This is crazy, you know. <laughs> and I said, No, I think it's a good idea. I, I started it writing a piano concerto, piano and orchestra. Mm. And I read, you know, the introduction to the program and um, I then went to work and I made a list of things that I didn't know how to do that I wanted to do. And I ended up with maybe it was five or six different things, but there were a group of things together. So it was a perfect way to learn it, because then I would take this problem and I go through this question and that and that and that and that. And it just sort of cemented the thing. It was very nice. And uh, no, I, I, I like that. I do not think I think one of the problems that young composers sometimes face is that they think the, the playback is real. Playback right. is anything but real. It doesn't <laughs> breathe, you know, it doesn't have nuances. It doesn't have pulse. Pulse is like the human pulse. The metronome mark is, doesn't mean much of anything because the, the pulse of a piece, it A, it depends on where you're, you're performing. And B, it's like human poise. Pulse, I guess. A little bit faster when it, you're excited and it slows down when you're relaxed. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a totally different world, but the, I love the programs and I think uh, it's been a big boost for composers. And there, that one exception that there are people that think that's during that time about, I don't know, maybe, I don't know how many years ago where um, if you were a student composer, you know, every measure had a different time signature. Of course, the computer could just Cough it back, you know. <laughs> but a performer, not necessarily. And um, I would often say, if I was with a young composer and I saw this meter change every bar, I said, "Sing this for me." Nine times out of ten, they couldn't do it, <laughs> and they they were convinced that the feedback from the computer program was accurate. Mm-hmm. It's it's great for proofreading because you hear a wrong note or something, but. Um, not for understanding the nature of performance, and uh, I'm sorry, no, that's <laughs> fascinating.
2: <laughs> We're also wondering um, three movements for orchestra, the symphony number one. Uh, how when it wins the Pulitzer, how did you find out that you had won? <laughs>
0: <laughs> they well, in stories. those days, They're they didn't stories. notify
1: the winners, uh, oh. <laughs> and I'm sitting at my desk working on something, and uh, the phone rings, and I pick it up, the old phone. <laughs> and this, this man says, um, is it Salem Swillig? I said, yes. He said, where were you born and what year? And I say, excuse me, <laughs> who are you and what do you want? And he said, oh, well, I'm from the U- UPS. And, and um, oh, maybe you don't know. You won the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> So I'm sitting there and trying to be dignified, you know. And but from time to time, I put my hand over the the mouthpiece of the phone and go, <laughs> yay! <laughs> <laughs> and then, but bef- bef- just about the time we were finished, and then I began to think, oh, do I know somebody mean enough to do this? My doorbell rang, and it was neighbors whose son was uh, in the stock exchange, <laughs> 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 and and they 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 knew about it. Oh. And, wow. So they rang the bell and they had a bottle of champagne or something. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so I found about it, out about it, you know, in a very bizarre way. And now they tell people, you know, they <laughs> they let people know.
0: <laughs> well, what what did it mean to you to win the prize, and what's what was the impact uh, from winning that on your career? Would you say, if I mean, it, it, as we've said in our one of our early episodes on Charles Ives, he said, "Prizes are for boys. I'm a man," and he he didn't make didn't think it meant a whole lot. Uh, but, what, I that, but I didn't know he said that.
1: But I I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I would say, girl, and yes, girls, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And I'm a woman. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, I think um, you have to take things in in perspective. It was a wonderful thing for me. I mean, it brought my music to a lot of people's attention that didn't know about it before. Did it? I mean, it certainly was helpful. But I think if you're doing anything creative, humility is more important than pride. Mm-hmm. And that's that's exactly what I've said, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, prizes are for boys, and I'm a man. You know, it's like. <laughs> oh boy, I won the prize, you know, it's like, (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't, it doesn't tell you you're valuable or you're not or anything like that. It's a a help because it brings your your music to other people's attention. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a big uh, help to me for that reason, you know, not that I thought this was, you know, like going to change my life forever or something (laughs) like that. I just, uh, I went with it, you know. And happy to have it. Who knows where it's going to (laughs) go.
0: Are you aware of what uh, Roger Sessions said after he won?
1: I don't know. You tell me. Oh,
2: evidently, he said that he told his wife that he had won. And she said, oh, good. Now we can have two eggs for breakfast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She was a fun lady. Yes, that's true. And he was a fun guy.
2: Yeah, Uh, we we, appreciate it. I mean, it's very much in the the vein of what you've been saying that it's nice to win, but it isn't the be all and end all that you, no, you, keep, no, doing, you keep doing the work and it brings your attention. Uh, in fact, one of the, the the things I wanted to ask you about was um, how you ended up in the Peanuts cartoon.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> now that, that was more shocking than the the phone call about the Pulitzer prize. I, um I had been out of town and my partner at that time, he and I, read New York times. We didn't, they don't have the comic strips. Okay. And I, I get back to my, my study and I had this old answering system with, Mm. it had like a tape in it, you know, that kind of thing. And it had stopped taking messages. And the first several messages said, Oh my God, I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) And finally the, the third message said, you may or may not know this but you're in today's Peanuts cartoon and today is, and he gave me the date. And of course I did the dignified thing and ran down to the trash (laughs) room, try to find an old daily news or post or something. And sure enough, I always say, I'm so glad I didn't read a paper that had the cartoons in it because um, I was like most musicians, we all had at least one or two Peanuts cartoons Mm -hmm. on the refrigerator, Mm -hmm. you know, wonderful stuff. Um, but if I had opened the paper and seen that Marcy and Peppermint Patty being at a concert where they're doing my music, you know, <laughs> I think I would have died of a heart attack <laughs> at, at that moment, you know, and I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> so I'm kind of glad that I didn't know, you know, I got quickly informed, but, you know. Like, um, it's, it's kind a, of like it, the
2: Pulitzer. No one, no one called to tell you ahead of time.
1: No, and wow. I had never met uh, Charles Schultz. He, uh, there was a, a feature on me on um, PBS. Mm-hmm. It, it was a it had a lot to do with my flute concerto, and that's what Marcy and Pippin <laughs> Patty were were attending. I found out his uh, address, which was one Snoopy place, and I, <laughs> I sent him a note. He sent me a, a lovely letter. And a, and a copy of the original cartoon with a nice oh, inscription wow. on it. But we had never met. Hmm. And uh, he was in California and I was in New York. And uh, uh, we met later on when I wrote my mm-hmm. piece called Peanuts Gallery.
2: We talk uh, about the the outcomes, right? The ripple effect of winning the Pulitzer. This is probably the most <laughs> unusual, but also one of the coolest. <laughs> yes. <Yeah, laughs> in Peanuts because of uh, the notoriety that this helped uh, garner for your music.
1: Oh, absolutely, and and like I say, that was a, a cartoon that, that musicians always followed because right. there were these wonderful musical jokes in them. Yeah. You know, Schroeder sitting in his little toy piano playing the Hammerklavier Sonata, yeah. in Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and all of these these other things. You know, the, the, one of my favorites was I think it was um, Marcy saying, "You know, it's very strange sometimes when there's a political change." And they say violins break out. He says, "No, that's violence breaks out." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's just really uh, quite quite amazing. Anyway, well, <laughs>
0: well to close off our, our last question here is to find out what you're doing now. So, what are you working on or uh, pieces? Well, that are I have in the work just
1: finished a piece for uh, a concerto for two pianos and orchestra. Mm. That'll be done. Actually in Santa Rosa, uh California, which was Charles Strill's hometown. Oh perfect. Actually. <laughs> not hometown, but where he, mm. he he and Jeannie lived for many years. That's just been finished. And I had a world premiere a week ago today of my Alto sax and Wind Ensemble concerto. Mm. Oh. I I'm I'm busy. <laughs> I keep <laughs> I keep writing.
2: Those <laughs> are not small works.
1: No, no. And I just feel so fortunate to mm-hmm. be able to spend my life doing this. You know, it's like, uh, what can I say? It's, um, it's it's, an honor and a privilege.
2: Well, professors, we appreciate your time. It's been a joy for us to get to talk to you and learn a little bit about your background and your experiences and especially uh, the impact of the Pulitzer Prize on your career. We appreciate your time.